Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried begging you for money. Give me money to make more, uh, Cut, take two. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried saying to you, give me money. I want money. Just give me money to make more Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. It costs money, believe it or not. You're over there saying, but it's so cheap and amateurish. I know that, but it still takes money. So it's patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. Patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. And there are rewards in it. I can't even say reward. Rolling. And there are cut. And you know, like signed posters, and uh, and I'll some some of you, if it's enough money, I'll roast you. And uh, there's so much, so much. But it's Patreon.com/slash Gilbert Gottfried. Give me money. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is one of the most versatile and most recognized actors of his generation with notable roles on the Broadway stage as well as both the big and small screen. TV appearances include MASH, Simon & Simon, Hill Street Blues, Heart to Heart, L.A. Law, Tales from the Crypt, NYPD Blue, The Simpsons, and the miniseries From Here to Eternity. And, of course, the villainous Kappa regime, Ralph Kifaretto on HBO. <laughs> close. Is, is close enough. I get Smith wrong. <laughs> Joe's enjoying this. Uh, uh, where was I? Sopranos. Oh, yes. The Sopranos, for which he won the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor. So you'd figure a uh, major hit series, he won an Emmy. I should know the name <laughs> of the character. He's worked. <laughs> He's given unforgettable performances in some of the most popular movies of the past 30 years, including Risky Business, The Idolmaker, The Goonies, Empire of the Sun, Midnight Run, Bad Boys, The Fugitive, Bound, U.S. Marshals, Daredevil, Memento, and The Matrix. (laughs) 
He worked with esteemed directors such as Steven Spielberg, Taylor Hackford, Christopher Nolan, and alongside everyone from Robert Downey to Tom Cruise to Harrison Ford to Robert De Niro. And if all that isn't impressive enough, he's also the author of two New York Times bestsellers, including Who's Sorry Now and Asylum. Please welcome to the show, Cypher, Teddy, Cosmo, Caesar, Eddie Moscone, and Guido the Killer Pimp, one of our favorite actors, Hoboken's own Joe Pantoliano. Well, thank you. Gee, when you put it that way, I should be dead for three years. <laughs> it's a miracle I could even walk. <laughs> he sometimes adds that to the intro. Was found dead in his New York apartment. Is yes. <laughs> survived by. Now, you said that the only time you know who you are is when you're playing a part. Um, yeah, I I came to the, the realization that I never knew who I was as a person, you know, I, you know, as a guy. I um, and, and so that the only time I ever really felt comfortable in my own skin was between the time uh, uh, somebody said action and cut, or when the curtain came up and then down, because I. In, the, in that moment, I knew who I was. I knew what my objective was. I knew what my lines were. Um, I knew what my intention was. I knew what I wanted. Yeah. But, um, you know, life is not as, uh, as uh, predictable as those things. So there was a certain comfort in, in playing those parts, you know, and, and being an actor and, and pretending to be somebody else. Um, I also came to think, you know, to conclude that part of the reason why I liked to play villains was that it, it, growing up as a kid, I was bullied a lot. And, uh, and I always felt, uh, I always felt like a coward. I was a coward because I didn't stand up for myself. Um, and so when I'm playing those parts, I can, I can treat the people that mistreated me with the, with the fury and the disdain and and the contempt. Oh, that's interesting. That I wanted to that I wanted to, uh, be able to do when I was a kid. Kind of correcting it, in art. Yeah. What happened in life? Yeah. Or my 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 doctor, my psychiatrist, once said it was like that. I I said you know from manipulating my brain all these years as an actor, did I did I make myself nuts? You know when I had this breakdown was it because I was an actor he said no probably the craft that you chose saved your life that uh, that you sublimated all of that pain and unresolved trauma which they call post-traumatic stress now uh, into into a craft that enabled me to visit those emotions and feelings and put them through through a creative format you know, I, I heard, I think Peter Sellers said in interviews that he didn't exist unless he was a character. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that I also know that I have a hard time enjoying life unless I'm when I'm not working. You know, I'm just like not doing much or not interested in much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can relate. <laughs> I know that feeling, yes. And you said you're from a family of diseases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. Like um, a cornucopia, like a, a, a marathon of. Uh, yeah, I was surrounded by because symptoms. You know the the idea that you, recently they, they call these things mental illnesses or or. Um, Disorders, and I and I don't see them as disorders. I see them as as a, 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 an unease, a disease. You know, uh, that's part of the title of your book, yeah. Asylum, disease, and uh, and it's and so it's not a permanent state of mind. It's a it's a momentary um, state that you can regulate and get out of. Many many times, uh, like in my family. It was manifested in in eating disorders, uh, or or you know cigarette smoking, or alcoholism, or gambling addictions, or um, uh, or like my father who loved taking risks, and so he you know he was a byproduct of of uh, being a part of organized crime and 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 went to jail a lot for that. Uh, but but the excitement and the energy that that took you out of this kind of for me it was this the the idea of being an actor the kind of bipolar atmosphere of getting a call finding out about a project trying to get the project trying to get up for the audition getting the audition waiting to hear if if it's good news or bad news, well, and, you've described you know, you've described show business as an addiction too. Waiting yeah. for the next high, yeah, uh, you know, and it's like you know, show business is a series of. Uh, I was very touched with the letter you showed me from Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. You know, a ton of uh, a, a ton of luck and uh, and a pound of courage, um, because you really need to be lucky. You really, you know, you have to you have to be assertive and aggressive and wanting to get an opportunity, but you have to get those opportunities. Otherwise, life is so nice. I've seen that in a lot of interviews. You always you always do mention luck. Yeah. And this is something that I always think about whenever it has to do with creative people with either mental, emotional problems or uh, substance abuse is the idea of like, you know, like an oyster – will get like a grain of sand and it it irritates him and he has to deal with it and that's how he makes a pearl. Mm-hmm. So do you think like if a psychiatrist just came by, snapped his fingers and made you totally normal, would you still be able to be as good an actor as you are? I, you know, I I don't know. If, I I wouldn't want to be totally normal. You know, I, 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 I got enough problems as it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, same question, Gilbert. Have you well, thought? Same question for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Have you have you considered that? Oh, I I definitely think that. Yeah. I definitely think if I wasn't so 
insecure and had so many, mm-hmm. you know, like OCD and all the crap that goes on in my head, uh, would I be able to perform? Right. Well, you know, the other thing is that I think most great accomplishments are born out of resentment. In my in my own life, it was like I was going to show my mother I wasn't a piece of shit. You know, I'll <laughs> okay. prove to her that I'm not a piece of shit. I'll prove to the to the, you know Miss Singler, my English teacher, that I'm not a fuck up. I'm going to show them. I'm going to become successful. I'm going to I'm going to become a movie actor, and I'm going to fucking show them that I'm not a piece of shit. And so for me, it really started to get complicated. Once my dreams started coming true, you know, these ideas and becoming successful and getting the things that I thought was going to define me, the physical life of definition, by definition of, of the car I always wanted and, you know, the beautiful wife and the beautiful house and all of these things. And then, the, the, uh, you know, and then the burden and fear that I would one day lose them. And yeah that they never provided any comfort. So I was frightened of losing all of the things that never did anything for me emotionally. It's like I always kind of felt like whenever I signed the deal with the devil to have a career in show business that back then part of the agreement I felt like was that I would be immune to all the problems that regular people have. That's right. Like, no, I wouldn't have depression. Right. I wouldn't have sadness. Right, 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 right. Yes, right. It would all be gone. All be gone. All be gone. And I could, re- I could erase my past. You know, all of this controversy the last couple of days with Donald Trump talking about um, the vets and and the idea of it being weak, a person being weak, oh, some people are weaker, stress post-traumatic stress. You know, and the the media coverage continues to paint this as a military condition. And post-traumatic stress is not a military condition. Anybody can have post-traumatic stress. You know, it's any event that occurs in your lifetime that lives inside your head six months after the event, and you can't get it out of your head even when you want to. That's what that's mm-hmm. what it's a trauma that was unresolved that is still living inside you, and. Um, and, and most of the guys, a lot of people, the guys and gals that I talked to, because I went, I went uh, to Iraq, because um, uh, I did a documentary yeah. um, called "No Kidding Me Too," and and what they were talking about had had very little to do with horrific events. Most of the people that suffer from this are first tour of duty, first deployment within the first thirty days of deployment. Um, and you know the suicide rate right now is like twenty a day, but I think it's a it's a microcosm. Of what's happening in our colleges and, and, and you know to to our kids at that age, this you know eighteen, nineteen years old, to be, you know to be a a, a, a man, uh, to come into a culture where you're eighteen or nineteen and have all the uh, you know now what do I do? Um, I think I think it's difficult. So I think. Uh, it's nice. It's good that they're talking about this stuff, but it's it's not just veterans that you know have tra- mm-hmm. traumatic pasts. Um, I think like eighty five percent of Americans have unresolved childhood traumas that that occurred between the ages of birth and six to seven years old. I must say, reading your book, I can understand why 
there's some post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. It's a stressful childhood. <laughs> sort of like you grew up in a Eugene O'Neill play. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. You know, give, give Gilbert a little bit of, of the context of, you know, you, you said your, your father was a gambler. You had a, your, 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 your mother's cousin. I remember I remember fighting all the time, fighting, fighting about not not enough money. There was no money. And you moved ten times, didn't you? I, it, we moved because uh, we we moved to, we because we were either being evicted, or um, we were moving because uh, uh, that the, the the landlord because of all of the fighting and all of the noise and all the arguing, um, um, or we was we were sneaking out on a bill. Um, and I, you know, one of the things I remember, I talk about it in the book, is, is that we had no credit. We, in order to get anything, in those days, in the fifties, the late fifties, I remember that they would attach, like my mom would buy a TV set, and they would attach like a parking meter device. So to get an hour's worth of electricity, you put a quarter in it. And that's and they came out every every month and they cleaned out these machines and that's how they got their payment. Same thing with refrigerator. I mean, so can you imagine? But you didn't put you didn't have the quarter to put in the refrigerator. The milk went bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, my mother had had this um, relationship with her third cousin, uh, and. And I remember when Cousin Flory, I remember him coming as a two-year-old, three-year-old kid. And I remember his mom, who uh, I called Aunt Lizzie. And I recall, I, I went to an event. My daughter worked, uh, she works for a film producer in Midtown. And they had an event down, downtown on, on, uh, on like West Street near Bank, or Horatio Street. There's a hotel mm-hmm. down there. And I said, you know... Your grandfather, when I was like six years old, I, that building right there was the federal holding prison uh, where he was uh, processed and then sent off to Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for um, a 15-year sentence. Um, so when Flory went away in those six years, I remember the, the these Christmas rituals of sending packages to Atlanta. And, and they always said that, uh, that he was off— he went off to college. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was an interesting uh, yeah. explanation. And, and you said that they were tapping the phone lines. They were tapping. Yeah, when he came home, and he and he was he, he got back into the life. Um, there would be these little clicks, and my mother th- thought she could outfox the FBI <laughs> by whispering. She would, <laughs> she'd whisper, "Hello." One time, when I did From Here to Eternity, it was a big deal for us. It was a big deal for me. It was the first important job TV I got. Movie TV here, yeah. was a miniseries based on the original right. book by James Joyce that was a big 1954 um, Academy Award winning uh, movie um, that resur- Frank Sinatra played Angelo Maggio. I got cast in the Angelo Maggio part. It resurrected his f- career. And, uh, and I... And we were both from Hoboken, New Jersey, sure. so they made a big deal about that when it was yeah, time to release this, this mini mini series. You didn't know transfer? Yeah. I'm Angelo Maggio, and before you get too friendly, I better warn you, I'm a draftee. Pruitt. Never met one of you guys before. Oh yeah? Well, don't let the clothes fool you. 
I happen to be a very important member of this unit. You would do well to cater to me. Okay. So my mother calls me up, um, and she goes, Joey. She's still whispering. <laughs> what? She goes, somebody from the New York Times called me up. And I said, well, what do they want? She, well, they wanted to know about you. They asked me, they asked me if I you know, talked to you and how I felt about you being in from there to eternity. And I said, well, what did you say? She said, I didn't say nothing. I told, <laughs> I told them you were dead to me. And I hung up. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, the article comes out. My Aunt Rosie, they found her. They interviewed her. My mother, who the fuck are these people interviewing her for? I'm your fucking mother. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah. You hung up on him, huh? Great. Now, this thing with post-traumatic stress, I wonder, are you like me where you keep uh, having arguments with people who, for all you know, have been dead for the past 50 years? Oh gosh! Well, you know that—that's the thing—is is that you know that's eternal life, isn't it? Yes. They live inside you. They live. I have dream. I have talks. Yeah, I have talks. I don't know if I'm arguing anymore. <laughs> some, some of them I'm not talking to. Um, but yeah, you know, because it's unresolved. It's unresolved. So the only way to resolve it is is uh, reaching down there, and. Uh, I love that song. She says, I don't care if the world knows what my secrets are. Perfect. That's Joey's ringtone. But, yeah, no, you. that's what happens. That's what happens. And do you constantly go back and try to do things over again? There's a a therapy that that, that they have uh, where you act that out. Um, Dr. T in Dayton, I think, uh, she's a specialist in that. but I, you know, I've spent before I realized that I was that I was really crazy. You know, I I had somehow gone through about twenty seven years of therapy. When I when I was twenty years old, I found therapy um, with the group therapy. Uh, um, um, it wasn't really a doctor; it was like a lay therapist, but. You know, I did that for like eleven years because I felt like that I was there was something really bad in in me, and I needed to be controlled. Otherwise, I was gonna, you know, somebody was going to be harmed by my selfishness and my self centeredness, and and so I needed, I, I always needed direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why I stayed in acting school for that long. And I think a lot of people are like that. You know, a lot of you know, we, we're tr- kind of tribal. By nature, and so you know, we want to we want to be validated. Uh, yeah, sure. It's one of the nice things about this business, actually, is that when you're collaborating, I've heard you say that you, your favorite projects are the ones where you're collaborating, where you're brought in on the creative process. I mm-hmm. mean, there's people around you. Yeah, you know, there's a fraternity. I mean, that's got to help. Yeah, and a, it, and a little bit. But it's you know, and it's also the nature of of that form, that creative form, Show, mm-hmm. you know, making movies is everybody's got, mm-hmm. you know, whoever's got a good idea. Um, and uh, You said you don't like films where the directors just say, you stand over there, you stand over there, but, but projects like Yeah, I don't like directors Memento, like that. You know, where you brought in on the, yeah. on the creative process. Yeah. It, it some struck me now, like where you were talking about how years of therapy and that you wound up on The Sopranos, which had to do with therapy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. 
and you know, and that's the other thing is is that all of these all of these characters on on that show were sick. They, you know, they they weren't all born that way. They, you know, they, it was a byproduct of of the kind of um, exposure to evil that they were exposed to. And um, I thought that way about about the character I played, Ralph. That uh, you know, I um, Ciferetto, by the way, Gil. Oh. Is that how you say it? <laughs> how, do you, how do you say it? Ciferetto. <laughs> uh, I I didn't know his last name. Santo for Padre about a took year. him about twelve weeks. <laughs> so don't feel bad. Talk a little bit about Ralph since you brought it up. I mean, you tried. I heard you say you tried to make him the nicest, funniest guy you could make him. Well, yeah, because his behavior was, you know, was was given circumstance was right. the, the behavior of, of, of the things that he did. One of the things that it came to me a couple of months into it, I, I guess I I'd done a couple of terrible things, and I and I I called David Chase and I said, I, you know, I I have a feeling that it seems to me that Ralph never throws the first punch. It's almost like he taunts. He taunts his um, his victim into into retaliating, then giving him the permission to hurt them, and and it's like if you look at it, it, it every time that he that he struck out against somebody, you know, with the with the white with the girlfriend. You know, she says, "I want to get a nice house," and he says, "Oh yeah, we'll name her after you." And you know, so she can grow up to be a stupid mm-hmm. slob like her mother. And then, you know, what are you crazy? You piece of shit! And then she hits him. And same thing. There's a scene that I had with uh, with a guy who was an Arab guy who had a garbage truck and he wasn't paying his vig. And I'm saying, you got, you know, you got to pay. And I and I break something. Uh, on on the table, and he hits me with a baseball bat, and we beat him up. So it was like, you know, taunting um, somebody, uh, and then getting them to retaliate. He even says when he gets yelled at, you know, for what he did to that that girl, he goes, "She hit me." Right. You know, you know, she hit me. A, she hit me. B, she's a hua. <laughs> it's a boy. We'll name him after me. It's a girl. We'll name it Tracy after you. This way she can grow up to be a cocksucking slob, just like a mother. Are you out of your fucking mind? Get any motherfucking piece of shit! That's right. That's right. Get it all out. Get it all out, you little hoa. That's my mother. My mother used to call call women my sister. She get over here, you little hua. It was never hua, right? It was she turned it yeah. into two words. Right. So, so I did the same thing. That was an homage to my mother. I I remember growing up, it was always hua. Yeah, that's an East Coast thing. I heard yeah. it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and before we forget, what was it like working, and what was he like as a person, James Gandolfini? He was adorable. He was uh, he was he was um, he was kind. He had a sense of humor. He he was very generous. Um, um, he was he was shy. Um, um, 
he he was inclusive, not exclusive, to a fault. I think I think I think that, that, that Jimmy um, also felt uh, you know it's projection on my part, but I I feel like possibly that you know why me? Why is all this good stuff happening to me? I'm just uh, you know mm-hmm. I'm just this fat guy from Jersey. You know why why? I mean, he when he when he did, I think it was season four. I was gone by then, but he he got a big payday, and he he wrote huge amounts of checks to people that were not getting a payday. You know, crew members, somebody. You know, he would. I remember one Christmas he did a Christmas party where he just got a ton of cash and he was giving cash away to everybody. You know, he was he was that kind of generous. We had Dominic Kianese sitting right where you are. Uh-huh. And telling us some some of the same things yeah. about him. Yeah, I find this interesting too. You find it hypocritical that people say, especially Italian Americans, say the show is disrespectful to Italian Americans. The same people that worship the Godfather. Yeah, and 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 uh, and also a lot of those people never saw the show. Mm-hmm. But also, I I I never I never saw, and I never had a conversation with David Chase about this. But I never saw the show as. Um, an anthology of an Itali- about Italian Americans. I I thought it was more about the deconstruction of the American family, like uh, the Godfather represented the, the the construction of family honor, right? And um, and here was a show about a group that became so dishonorable that that they did anything to anybody and and they betrayed each other, you know. Uh, um, you know, a lot like what what the, this political season is is all about. You <laughs> yeah. Know? And, uh, yeah, there is some of that. While we wait for Gilbert to find the men's room, <laughs> we promise we'll come back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Don't go away. And now back to the show. Tell tell Gilbert about growing up with Sinat- uh, on the same block on Monroe Street. Yeah, with the Sinatra block. Well, block Sinatra, Sinatra grew up there, and Jimmy Roselli. Yeah, you know. Uh, and so, uh, and your family knew his family, knew Sinatra's family. Yeah. There was a little bit of bad blood, and I love the story about your dad. Oh well, you know that's um, Gil. You'll like this. <laughs> what happened was, is my grandfather was the first Italian was born in Italy, Pietro Pantoliano, who became a firefighter in an all Irish uh, business model. Firemen in Hoboken were all Irish. He was the first Italian immigrant to become a fireman. Worked his way up through through the ranks and became the first Italian American. Um, by then, he became an American citizen, uh, captain of the precinct. So he was the captain. So in those days, I, I guess, like today. Um, they made a. He was he was retiring, and Dolly Sinatra went up to said, "Hey, listen, if you Frank's mother, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you appoint Marty Frank's father to to succeed you, Frankie will give you a thousand dollars under the table." Okay, yeah, go to he's playing at the Paramount. Go to the Paramount, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he'll give you the money. So now. Years later, my father's dead now, all of that bad blood. But I found out that the story was that 
Grandpa went there. Frank wouldn't let him in. Left him at the stage manager door, and he, he said, said, "I don't know anybody. By I don't that know name. anybody <laughs> named Pete Pagliano." <laughs> so that was the story. And so the Pagliano's hated Sinatra for stiffing him, right? <laughs> so when I'm writing my, when I'm when I'm doing the Who's Sorry Now, the first uh, book, uh-huh. I go to, I go to Hoboken uh, uh, Mayor's office, uh, Stevie Cappiello, who used to be a cop and was from the Third Ward. And and he said, you know that ain't that ain't true about uh, Sinatra. What it really happened is Jip DiCarlo, who was the boss, he was like the boss of of all of New Jersey. He was like the underboss of of Vito Genovese in New York, right? Jip finds out that Frankie made this deal, and he goes to Frank. He goes, "Oh, Pete sent to me for three grand. Give me the money." So Frank gave him the thousand dollars. <laughs> So when my grandfather went to the Paramount, what really happened was Frank came out. He goes, hey, Pete, how you doing? He said, did you see the show? He says, no, no, I came for my money. He says, oh, I gave it to Jip DiCarlo. He told me, you know, you owed him. He goes, oh, yeah. He says, well, don't tell the kids. Oh. So then he, grandpa goes in the car. My uncle Popeye says, you get the money? He goes, no, the son of a bitch didn't pay me. He said he didn't know who I was. <laughs> And, they, and your dad held on to that for a long time. It, 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 he he was dying. He was diagnosed with lung cancer, and uh, he got he 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 had a pain in his leg, and they rushed him to the hospital. And he's being uh, you know doing the paperwork for the emergency room somewhere in you know Hudson County. And the nurse said, where are you from? He said, Hoboken, New Jersey. And she says, oh, Frank Sinatra country. She, and he said, fuck you, fuck Frank Sinatra. I don't want to die here. And they, they put him in the car. And on his way to the other hospital, he died. I love that those are some of his last words. Yeah. Fuck you fuck and you fuck, fuck Frank Sinatra. Sinatra. That's and great. You told a story, and I think they even made it into a cartoon, then could you tell that story about this beautiful girl? The first time and, I ever brought a girlfriend home. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were very shy among girls. Um. Yeah. And, and also I thought that, you know, I thought that women would eventually turn into my mother. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be under their thumb like my mother's, you know, my mother would just beat the hell out of my father, even my, even my wise guy father. You know, she, she had. She was the toughest man I ever knew was my mother. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so we, I take this girl, Ellen, and she's like a, a runway model, and she's beautiful, and uh, I want to show off a little bit. And I take, I, you know, I take it down the Jersey Shore where my my Flory and my mother can you know scratch up enough money to rent a bungalow for a week. And it's Sunday afternoon, and we're sitting. Down and my mom's at the head of the table and Flory's at the other head. I'm sitting next to my mother. Ellen's across the way from me, next to my mother. My sister is between me and Flory. And then there's Joe, the insurance man, who was a friend of Flory's, sitting next to Ellen in between Flory and Ellen. So um, my sister has got this glass of iced tea, and uh, and in the inside of the glass there's ridges, and she's kind of mixing the ice uh, inside the glass, and it's hitting the ridges and it's making noise and it's bugging me. And I go, Marianne, do you have to do that? And my sister was like 12 at the time. She goes, Jesus Christ. And she slams the glass. You can't do a fucking thing in this house. So Flory says, watch your mouth. My mother 
steam starts coming out of her ears, and she looks down at him, and she goes, she ain't your daughter. Mind your own business. And Flory picks up a salad bowl and smashes it on the table, and he goes, I put the food on this fucking table. Don't you ever talk to me like that. And my mother goes, oh, big shot. What are you going to do? Shoot me? You're going to shoot me? And I'm like, so I get so mad at her. I go, you see, that's why I don't bring anybody into this house, because of your fucking mouth. And my mother turns on me now, and she goes, you little summon a bitch. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And my mother grabs her breast. She twists her breast, and she goes, I cursed the milk that fed you. You should have died in my womb. In my womb, you should have died. And Ellen is eating. All she can do is eat. We're screaming and crying and food's flying everywhere. And she's just, her head's down and she's eating sausage and peppers. And uh, (laughs) I pack my bag. I'm outside. Joe's saying, go in and tell your mother you're sorry. Fuck you. I didn't, you know, she started it. And uh, and Ellen, we're leaving. And Ellen see the deconstruction of a family. It's the end. And my mother opens up the screen door. She goes, Joey, you want coffee? (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. So, Joe, let's talk a little bit about your attempts to escape. You what you you you, what you watch? You watched a lot of the million dollar movie. You watched Martha Ray. I watched Martha Ray and the Million Dollar Movie. Mary Mailman. Um, 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 the Three Stooges, Abbott mm-hmm. and Costello. Mm-hmm. Oh, and 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 um, and I and I just loved Harpo Marx. Uh, but I had this, you know. I remember watching these black and white films and thinking um, that there was this tremendous fear that I had that. I'm going to die. I'm going to live my whole life and I'm going to die. And there's never going to be any evidence that I ever existed. But I'm looking at these actors, black and white actors and actresses, and I'm thinking, well, gee, they're dead, but they're still here. They still exist on the television. People see them and that's the evidence that they were there. If I become an actor and become successful was well, I never even no you know, I never even thought about becoming I just I'll become an actor and I'll live forever There's a term in the book you use technicolor ghost Technicolor ghost Yeah Yeah You know I I when you were talking about how your mother would, would attack your father it reminded me uh Pat Cooper <laughs> When we had him on the show <laughs> Well we had show. Pat Cooper oh, here Oh I love yeah. that he guy He said yeah. the mother was uh, his uh, his mother was busting his father's ass, and so the father just quietly got up and took, found the birth, uh, no, the marriage certificate, and he goes, you know, what what name is over there, and what name's that, and where did what does it say there, and he goes, now where on this page does it say I gotta take you shit. <laughs> You should listen to that episode we did with him, Joe. I'll send it to you. Oh, I got it. It's gold. I love Pat Cooper. It's gold. Oh, God. Um, but, you know, when I saw The Godfather, I remember thinking, there's something wrong with this picture because the women were so sub- subservient and quiet. And I was like, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> right. It was the other way around. <laughs> right. The men were always quiet and the women were, like, running the family. Right. And... Uh, and so I, that's another reason why I wanted to tell this story. But then 
uh, Terry Winter. Terry Winter read a galley of of uh, Who's Sorry Now, and uh, and I said, you know, this Sopranos this writer. He was a yeah, yeah writer on Sopranos and other things, great mm-hmm. things. Uh, um, but I said, you know, this idea about the dominant father and the weak mother. That's not you know I, that's not how I remember. He said, but you know. The Godfather is really based on Mario Puzo's mother, and I didn't know that. That's interesting. It's really wow. interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Now, we have, I think, or had, rather, a mutual friend uh, that we both knew, and I, I, we both worked with Charlie Rocket. Yeah. I yeah. worked with him on Saturday Night Live, that terrible season. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I didn't know— you know that part of Charlie, I, I didn't know. I do. I knew that he, you know he was. I, I knew him socially at first. We wound up working together on a movie, uh, but there was a time when we were all spending a lot of time in New York. Him and Tony Edwards and um, um, and, and Charlie's wife Beth and uh, my wife Nancy and 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 Charlie was always. A sobering com- companion, you know. He he was he was very charming and funny, but he was always also a good listener. So I I had some really deep conversations with him about my own confusing life, and uh, and then you know life you have kids and uh, but I we asked him because he was an ordained minister. He went and got one of those eleven dollar ordained minister thing, and he so he married Nancy and I. He married us, and it was great. And he was great. Uh, it was a wonderful event, a wonderful wedding, and we had a we had a blast. And and we were both Nancy and I were both married before, so it was kind of took the onus off of of it. Uh, but then you know Charlie, I was shooting a film in Florida that I was also a producer on, so I was in pre-production, and he called me, and it turned out that they had moved back to Connecticut, but deeper, closer to. Rhode Island, where he's from, I believe, and I and I said, well, um, yeah, I'm in Florida now, um, and you know, Tony's, he's, they got a place in in Connecticut. Why don't Why don't we all get together for Thanksgiving? How you doing? And he said, I'm pretty good, you know, slowing down a little bit, but I, you know, I take the train in and I do some voiceover stuff, and um, he sounded fine. And then Nancy called. That was Sunday on a on I think Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning maybe it was to say that Charlie had had slit his throat you know it was really that was kind of like the beginning of of my journey through this depression that was always there but I didn't know it and because uh, I remember thinking like well I had this thought that was maybe that's the answer. You know, not like, not an anger or, my, the first thought was maybe that's the answer and it scared me to death. The idea that, you know, what do you talk, you know, like the conversation I'm having, like, what, what's wrong with you? How could you even think that way? And, you know, it was a combination of, of 9-11 and all of this stuff happening and, and it kind of kicked up all of this emotional dust of the primary, that 10, 11 years of the first 10, 11 years of my life that just started getting kicked up. 
So Charlie's death was was among the wake up calls. Yeah, it was a big yeah. wake up call. Did you stay in touch with him, Gil, in, in yeah, later I, years? It, it, I didn't really stay in touch with him. I remember what what's uh, totally untrue uh, with Charlie is like they say, you know, he said fuck on the air and that destroyed his career. And it, it didn't. He was always in movies, yeah. TV He's shows. Working. Yeah. And I remember the last time I saw him, we just got thrown together in this Jenny McCarthy's sitcom. We were both doing guest spots on the same. We were playing brothers. And he invited me to his house for dinner, and we had a lot of laughs. And and I didn't see any other side to him. I mean, especially cutting your throat. That's... I mean, self hatred with, with with two yes with yes. two knives. Well, wow. you know, like Japanese yeah. style. And so that's not a cry for help. That's you. You hate yourself. You want to well, or you know, or not. I mean, it's like what 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 one of the doctors said because Nancy Nancy and I think our friend Kayla they went up to be with Beth. You know, it's like punching a wall. You know, uh, or or hitting a steering wheel. You know, we'd be surprised to know how many people out there commit suicide, and we and it wind up looking like car accidents. Um, you know, people go into trees or boulders. It, it it becomes this fuck it moment where you just you know you just go like, and then you can't take it back. Right. You know, they talk to people who jump off bridges. That's one I always think about. Whenever I hear about someone jumping off a bridge or a building, there has to be that fucking split second where you go, what the fuck did I just do? Right. Right. Now, you say you're happiest when you're working. Was was making it as an actor just starting to make it as an actor in the early days? Do you have a memory of that? Was was that – did that take some of the – the crappy feelings away. No, be, I think I think I, I I I you know the, from the first time I was I did a play in high school, that feeling uh, being in the lights and up the and, and, and people, yeah, and yeah. and or 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 being just doing scenes in acting class. There was something to that. Um, hearing hearing an audience, hearing their attention, um, um, getting a laugh. Um, it was very, you know, very exciting, and 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 I felt alive. The other, the thing, the thing about depression is, in my case, that it felt more alive than happiness. You know, when I when I when I'm when I'm in a in a bad state. I can feel it in my chest. You know, I can feel it in my heart. I feel it in my body. When I'm in a you know state of elation, where there's like good news, you know, I, I, things are go, going good. I it doesn't feel real to me. You know, interesting. It's, it's not as familiar. It's not a, it's not as familiar feeling. You you said that you were at the Sundance Film Festival, and you were talking about sitting on your bed. You were all dressed. Oh yeah, I was going skiing, and uh, and I and I had put on all my ski stuff, and I had the, you know, the, the goggles on my top of my head, and I couldn't get, I couldn't move, and I had this, you know, talk with my brain, 
saying, move, come on, Joey, move, just take the next step. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I remember hearing Dick Cavett describe it as um, if, if somebody had come up with this elixir and put it five feet away and, and say, drink this and everything will be all right, everything will be great that he couldn't make it those five feet. Let's just shift gears a little bit. I want to get to some of the things in the book, some of the angels in your career. The, the, the two of the touching stories are your relationship with Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson, and then mm-hmm. later Natalie Wood. Yeah. Which um, you call, people you call your angels. Well, you know, they, 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 Flory was an angel. You know, the, the people that made, made you feel like you were worth the investment um, when you have nothing— um, and uh, and and they and they represent what your dream is, um, but you know the the Wallach family have been a very important part. We talk about them on this show quite a bit. Yeah. It's one of our favorites. And they are they you know it, it was like Roberta and Peter and Catherine was was a kid when when I met her. I was I was eighteen when I met them. You knew his children in acting school. I knew Roberta. Roberta, we were in acting school together, and then I got to know. Uh, yeah, everybody, because she brought me over to the house, you know, and I was at the house for Annie's uh, Shiva and then Eli's uh, this summer. You know, that living room that I went into when I was 18 years old, I was in that living room 40 years later, you know. Weird. Uh, and she passed recently, Ann Jackson. She passed, yeah, uh, she, yeah, yeah. she passed, uh, actually it was Annie's, yeah, Annie was the last one. And Eli Wallach is who they wanted for Maggio. To be, to be Maggio. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, That's he, he was doing a connection. play and couldn't do it. You show up at his house on the wrong night. There was a, there was a New Year's Eve party. It was a, it was a day party. <laughs> yeah, the wrong day. Yeah, it was uh, my friend Michael Kell and I. We, we were invited to go to their New Year's, New Year's party. And I guess New Year's fell on a Sunday but it was, uh, you know, it was this actually going to be on the second. No, it fell on a Saturday. So we went, and Eli opens the door. He goes, "Hi, how you doing? Good. What do you, you know, you want to see the kids?" I said, "No, we came for the party." He goes, "The party's tomorrow." <laughs> oh my God! He says, "Well, come on in." And so we're in the kitchen, and then somebody else came. <laughs> and so they wound up, uh, you know, making some stuff and having coffee, and so we got to go <laughs> twice. Yeah. That's now, nice. Do you this this is something I experience a lot. Do you like in your life like look at stuff just even going on in the day and you go, Wow, anybody else would be, would think they died and went to heaven. Anyone else would be enjoying this so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, it's it's like an empty it's like the, the hole is so big you can't fill it up, you know, and it's like when I was, you know, if if I was if I was a you know if I was a movie star if I was making two million dollars a picture if I was making seven million dollars a picture if I was making twenty million dollars a picture then I'd be happy. If I oh, yeah. you know when I when I won the Emmy award it was like I was just going to ask you it's about an that. Emmy. Yeah, you had a yeah. you had an is this all there is moment. Yeah, I bet okay. you if this was an Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> 
Robert Stack, I did I did a TV show uh, called The Finelli Boys, and Robert Stack guest starred. We spent a whole week with Robert Stack, one of the greatest guys. The stories he told, oh, wonderful. But he said, you know, when he won, you know, he 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 went and did The Untouchables, and it was Desi Lu and Desi Arnaz, you know, bought him a, a Mercedes, and he was like, I don't want to go, and and his wife said, you got to go. And he said, but winning an Emmy is like being the world's tallest midget. Who gives a shit? <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> so I'm like, it was like, I'm up there and I'm hearing Robert Stack. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives a shit? Right? Now, you also, you said a story. I think the movie was black and white. Oh, it's so yeah. bad. Yeah. And and you asked you were friends with Robert Downey Jr. Right. So you you wanted to call in a favor. I it. called in a favor, and I said, Robert, you know, there's there's a part. Uh, can you call? And um, he said, sure. And then uh, I got the job, and uh, and I guess I don't know if Toback knew who I was, but you know, I'm on the set with him, and he's like, you know. Downey called me. I said, that was really nice of him. He goes, well, you know what he said? He said, he said, if you don't hire Joe Pantoliano, you should die of cancer. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Jerry Lewis in The yes. King of Comedy. Wow. <laughs> what a great line. Yeah. He, isn't, he has to be an interesting guy, Tobek. Uh, uh, yeah. I love Fingers. I love that movie. Yeah, he's a... Uh, but, you know, it's like... I always I say in in Asylum because that Hollywood is really where the craziest people go, mm-hmm. the sickest, craziest, dysfunctional, insecure. That's where we go. That's that's our haven. That's that's where we go for our cure. And attention. Uh, and then you know, yeah. if, and then if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to get everything you want, if you're really fucked up, you give it back. You know, you, all of those stories, they wind up giving it back. And they go, why would they do that? Why would they, you know, why would they beat their wife? Why would they do, you know, you know, with alcoholism and drug addiction? Why would they do that? Because it ain't enough. The hole is still there. You know, they, say, they have a, a 12-step program. They say it's an inside job. You know, that you, you can't heal it from the outside. You can only heal it from the inside. Tell us a little bit about you, you're out in L.A. with your with your your first wife and and Natalie Wood. You you, you meet Natalie Wood, who meant something to you because as a kid, West Side Story meant right, a lot right, to you. Right, right, right. And suddenly, the director's inviting you into his office, and there's Natalie Wood, and that was a moment for you. Oh, it's like that was a life changing. I was like, uh, I think I think she's the first movie star. Because I was only 26 years old, and recently in California, maybe I saw. People on the street, you know, but I'm I'm meeting Natalie Wood, and you know, uh, and um, and then Steve Railsback, who played Pruitt, uh, and I were in that courtyard uh, where Buzz Kulick's office was, and we they were teaching us how to march, you know, with with a technical advisor, and uh, I remember this. This guy walking toward us, and he had an ascot and a, a car jacket on, and he said, Joe Panalana. 
and it was it was Robert Wagner, you know, and that's the other. I grew up with it. It takes a thief. Oh sure, you know, I, I love that yeah. show, and I love the way his hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the way they made his hair, and yeah. I was like, holy shit! And he says, uh, so I hear you got a crush on my wife, and I was like, hubba da hubba da. <laughs> and then they invited us to their house, and um, and you met Gregory Peck. Oh, Greg! Yeah. I oh just my saw. God. I just saw the Gregory Peck documentary. Um, yeah, I, I uh, after I after I done I I did from here to eternity. It was semi successful. They wanted me to do the series uh, that I, I I that I didn't do, and I I went back to weighing tables at Mateo's, who's from Hoboken, Maddie Action, on Westwood Boulevard. I was a waiter there. And the show is like just – it's coming out. It's up against Roots 2 and, it, and they're showing it once a week. And so, you know, people are asking me to sign their menu and uh, – <laughs> That's a showbiz story. Yeah. You're and, in a movie. You're in a hit movie. They offer you the series. You don't want the series. You want to do movies and you yeah. think you're going to be stigmatized by doing series. Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. So you go back to wait- waitering. And everybody back. recognizes you. Yeah, and and that you could do in New York, but in California was maybe not a good idea. So anyway, the agent finds out. And he says, "You can't do that. What does it cost? I'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll loan you six thousand dollars to cover your nut until you get your next job." In the meantime, I had I was owed six thousand dollars in back taxes, so I had to borrow six thousand dollars from the Wagners and. Uh, and RJ said, well, come over to the house and I'll give you a check. So he said, wait. Um, he said, come back here. Uh, I want, there's somebody I want you to meet. And Gregory Peck was – they had a little gym and he was working out. And he goes, Greg, Greg, come here. I want you to meet somebody. And it was like, how do you do? And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is surreal. Yeah, that bet. stuff is surreal. When you meet these people – that framed your life, but larger than life. And a guy like Gregory Peck really was larger than life. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and they say something nice to you. And it's like, you know, it helps you to keep going. Sure. Keep going. But I, when I was doing I was doing Frankie and Johnny uh, on Broadway, he, and he came with Jill St. John, John, you know, came to see it, you know, didn't tell me he was coming. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of I – mean, he's such an adorable guy. You wanted to be like Spencer Tracy. You wanted to be like Cary Grant. Yeah, and I got I got stuck with Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't done bad, Joe. Now, you mention another actor who, for the people out there who don't know the name, look him up. You'll recognize him right away. That uh, Robert Davi. Robert Davi. Yeah. yeah. Did I mention him? No, no, no. But, in in but, an in an interview, uh-huh. you you mentioned that you you guys grew up together. No, no. What, did you, you say you were the rivals? The two of you didn't get along. We didn't get along on on. Uh, well, I didn't get along with him, um, on on the uh, in the Goonies. Oh, okay. We didn't get along with each other, and uh, and it. We knew each other. He he had played a he he had done a, a couple of days work. On from here to eternity, and uh, and he lived he lived in in Marina del Rey, and I was living in Venice, and and uh, we we hung out a couple of times. So we had a we kind of knew each other, and so when they when they put us on film, they put us on tape for the for the Finelli brothers. I remember him saying, "You know, 
in the interview because it was it wasn't an audition. It was just like an open interview. And he said, you know, he's wearing a hairpiece, right? <laughs> Which I thought was really a shitty thing to say. So I took it off and I said, so yeah, so if you want me to come without it, I can come without it. I you know, pulled it off. Yeah. I, you want me to be, be younger? And I lowered it. I said, I can be younger. Uh, <laughs> and I guess they liked the banter, but but that relationship kind of evolved into what happened in the movie. It was What happened in the movie was... was, was you know what the way we were treating ourselves each other off camera too interesting i love bringing up these old actors these these great character actors robert oh, dobby yeah. steve railsback too railsback yeah and the Railsback's great stunt man stunt man he played charles manson charles manson helter skelter and ed ed he also did a ed Gwein, ed that uh, ed gein ed oh ed gein yeah, yeah. oh, oh yeah. Boy, yes good yes. actor underrated actor mm-hmm. now i remember and uh, I mean, they, it mentions Mash in your credits, but I remember that episode. You do. You're lying in bed, and I—I I think I remember it <laughs> because it has to do with a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I gotta hear this. <laughs> <laughs> you like want to get out of the army? I wanted so, to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still. <laughs> I steal this guy's uh, his dog tags. This guy he yeah. die he's, he dies, and I steal his dog tags, and uh, and I wind up going into the hospital, and they and they give me a blood transfusion that almost kills me because his blood type is different than my blood type. But when I saw that episode, it inspired me to get a nose job. Was it because? <laughs> Because they, you know what they call fifty-fifty. It's like when two yeah. people are looking at each other, so the camera's getting the angle. And I said, you know, you could have Cary Grant's career if you had a small one nose. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, I'll, I'll play, I'll play less bad guys if I had a smaller nose. So. Uh, my son, years later, Mash is on television. It was Mash from here, uh, from Risky Business. One of the, I said, "Look, I'm in this, this," and my kid's like, you know, nine years old, and he's looking at the TV, and he's looking at me, and he gets out of the chair, and he gets eight feet close, closer to the TV. <laughs> he looks at me. He gets now he's three feet away. Finally, he's nose to nose to the TV. He keeps looking at me, and he goes, "Dad, what happened to your nose?" Because <laughs> I, I remember in that episode, Father Mulcahy uh, it has to learn some Jewish prayer, and he and comes to my character. Yeah, right? I love yeah it. he comes to me. Uh, yeah, that was a great job because that was like the last year that they were doing it. Eighty-one, you were, you did that Mash episode. My kid was just born then. Yeah. My son was just born. Pretty early in your career. Yeah, David Ogden Stiers was he also directed that episode and you know where uh, it was like doing a play where the first day everybody sat around the table and then then they camera blocked each scene and then the follow so you you shot it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. What do you remember about uh, making a uh... <laughs> Uh, was this a pilot or a series called McNamara's Band? With John with, Biner. We had John on the oh, show. Oh, wow. We had John really? on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. What's he doing? Funny he's as great. ever. He's in Florida and funny as ever. Where does he live in Florida? We'll track him down for you. We'll get oh, you the info. John was Biner. That was, that was the first job I got. That was really the first job I got 
in in California. So McNamara's band. It was it was it it was Harry Columbi. It was uh, Bernie Kukoff and Jeff Harris. And uh, you know Harry went on to be he was he was Biner's manager. He was Michael Keaton's manager. Yeah, I was going to say Michael Keaton. Um, but uh, it was it was about it was it took place during World War Two, and they were it was like the, the dirty half dozen. Okay, you know it was like these guys are all in jail, and you work for the government, and if you don't get killed at the end of the war, you get your pardon. And Biner, they they were bank robbers, and Biner was the brains, and then uh, Bruce Kirby. Yeah, Bruno Kirby's ah. dead. Right, Bruce Kirby. He was the getaway driver who didn't couldn't drive. Um, Sid Haig was uh, Zoltan. <laughs> oh, the wow. Sid Haig too. And Sid Haig, Sid Haig was uh, was was the leg breaker that couldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> uh, I was the I was the bomb specialist that was afraid of bombs. I mean, it was like, we did three episodes. It was like three one-hour episodes for ABC. It was fantastic. It sounds almost Hogan's Heroes-ish a little bit, too. Well, and, yeah, yeah, and it came after Hogan's yeah, Heroes. Yeah. Uh, but Hogan, wasn't that Starlock 17, Hogan's Heroes? Pretty oh, much. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. But I remember I was doing a scene. We were we were at the Harold Lloyd Estate that years later my friend Ron Burkle bought and turned it into a beautiful palace. But it was, it was run down and we shot there. And uh, and I and I remember I I was wrestling a bear with the Nazis. The Nazis. Were the, <laughs> you know, we 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 pretended to be gypsies. We pretended to be Nazis. It was hysterical. It was hysterical. That's great. You also told a story that one time you were going to do a movie, and you had a twenty-four hour layover in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, was 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 it was for um, it was Empire and, of the Sun, yeah, and uh, and but the, the layover was at Nagata, which was like three hours from Tokyo, but I you know I wanted to see Tokyo, I never heard of Nagata, and so the the Tokyo guys, the the Warner Brother guys, picked up my girlfriend and I and took and drove us all the way to Tokyo and we. Had this amazing night, and I got uh, I drank a lot of sake, <laughs> <laughs> and we got on the airplane, and it was a Chinese air- airline, and they, you know, boy, you really appreciate guys that know what the fuck they're doing because this plane was. Like, oh, <laughs> oh God, my worst nightmare. And I'm throwing up in the bathroom, and you know. <laughs> You know the muscle, the you know the body muscle. You go, and my ass is hitting the door, and it's <laughs> banging my head against the wall, and I'm puking everywhere, but in the toilet. And I was green when we landed. I was green, and I'm walking with my girlfriend, and these these Chinese guys, these spotters, they grab me, and they're going to quarantine me. They thought I was hazardous, and the production manager was a British guy. So I was going on and grabbed me and was able to talk them into letting me go through customs. And uh, by the time I got to the hotel, I was feeling a lot better. <laughs> Our friend Frankie Verderosa is, uh, of course, here, as he is every week. And he's a big fan of Midnight Run. So we have to, out of respect to Frankie, we have to ask you about Moscone. Eddie Moscone. Eddie Moscone and Bail Bonds. Moscone's Bail Bonds. 
Jerry, put Eddie on the phone. Jack, what's the progress? I got him. You got him. The Duke, he's standing right here. You got him? Already? Sure do. Want to say hello? Say hello to your bail bondsman, Eddie Moscone. Hello. There you go. Jonathan Mardukas in the flesh. Jack, I love you! What happened? How did this happen? Where'd you find him? I found him in New York. We're at the airport. Holy Christ, this is wonderful. This is wonderful news. Martin Brest, the director you knew previously. Yeah, I, I knew Marty uh, when he was, you know, from his NYU days uh, as a student. And then, um, but he, Jer- Jerry Saldo was a mutual friend of ours. Uh, and Saldo, I guess... Mentioned to Marty, you know, what about Joey Pants? And then Marty called and said, listen, there's these two characters, you you know, whichever one you want. And I read it and I said, ah, I don't want to. I'd done that before. Um, You were supposed to be two of the the hoodlums, the guys that worked for— Yeah, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, yeah. uh, Is this idiot number one? Right, right, okay, I got you. Farina. And I I said, I want want to do something different— I say, well, I want to play the, the accountant. He says, yeah, well, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> he said, I said, well, then what about what about the bail bondsman? He goes, no, 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 no. I got this other guy. I got this guy in my, I, you know, I want him to be a big guy, big, big fat guy. I said, well, that's the only part that I, I could do. He said, well, you, you know, that one I ain't giving away. You know, if you want that one, you got to earn it. You got to come in and read for it. So I came in and I read and, uh, and I got the job. Uh, you read with De Niro. I read with De Niro. Yeah. And uh, I remember my agent calling. He said, I got good news and got bad news. Uh, yeah, okay. So what's the good news? You got the part. Great. What's the bad news? Just went at the turnaround at Paramount. <laughs> 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 Why? Because Marty wants Charles Grodin and they wanted Cher. I remember. They wanted Cher. Did and, you know that? Oh, To be no. the accountant opposite De Niro. Oh, geez. Can you imagine? So he said, you know, so, you know, Marty stuck by his guns and and uh, and, and Universal picked it up. It's a hell of a movie. Yeah, it still is. Yeah. It just holds up so well. Uh, yep. We we had Amy Heckerling here and she's also friends with, with Martin Brest. And yeah, we were they were asking, to, yeah. you know, what's going on and why why he isn't uh, still making films because he he, he made he really you know marty a, didn't make a lot of movies when he was working yeah but it was like he, every four years every time it was an election like he'd be doing a movie right now because there's an it's an election year but but he um but going in style is so good and so and, good and, and everything's getting remade yeah I they, know. They, they've been talking about trying to remake uh, doing another midnight run um but you know he'd be the last guy they'd call because the, the 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 these studio guys, they get younger and younger, yeah. and and they and they want to re. They, it's almost like they reward ambition. Let's get a let let's get a young, good commercial director or you know video director. We're gonna get you know it's like, um, and Marty Marty's the guy that brought that to life. And when you think about what he did with uh, with um, um, Beverly Hills Cop, yeah, and uh, sure, which and, was a Stallone vehicle, yeah, yeah. You know, Marty's Marty's uh, knows his stuff, and he's really excellent. I just worked with Ron Shelton, who, who another did, guy. You know, he yeah. did um, Bull Durham, Tin Cop, sure. Uh, white um, men, white, white men, men can't, can't jump, jump uh, right, and. Uh, you know, th- this is the first film he's directed in like twelve years. He wrote he wrote 
uh, Bad Boys 2. And he's I like Blaze, too. He wrote Blaze yeah. and directed yeah, Blaze. Good. And he wrote and directed Cobb with Tommy Lee right. Jones. You know, this is a guy that... It's like I remember the first day at work. We rehearsed for a few days, like a week. But then, then it was that first day at work, and I was like, wow, it's been a long time since, I, since I've, I've been working with, with filmmakers that really know what they're doing. And... Uh, and I was reminded uh, how how long it's been, and and how these young kids, you know, they they've got they got the ambition, and somebody gives them the money, but a lot of them, you know, it just doesn't come together. And then they go, "Well, gee, why isn't the movie business any better?" You worked with three directors: Andrew Davis, uh, Martin Brest, and Paul Brickman, who all made early marks, yeah. really good films. Yeah. And then all three of them kind of fell off the map a little bit. Well, you know, it's like... Um, Paul Brickman's follow-up to Risky Business, Men Don't Leave, is very good. But Paul, I I, I mean, I my, my impression of Paul is, is that he doesn't... I don't know if he likes directing that much. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I know he loves to write, and he's been very prolific in his writing. and and uh, But I, I, I don't know... If he liked the idea of of all of these departments, I, because you know he didn't take take the energy from risky business because he got offered for the next year and a half he was he was the first guy they went to. I'm sure. Um, and then uh, you know, but a lot of you know we're, we're all these guys are all in their early seventies now. You know, and apparently it's uh, there's only two guys that are allowed to work after seventy five, and that's Clint Eastwood and and Woody Allen. Right. (laughs) Interesting. They get the pass. Interesting. Nobody else is allowed. (laughs) Right. Interesting. Good films. And tell the story of The Fugitive. It's a a funny story, too, is when you decided you would be the guy that went— Oh, with Harrison? You'd be Um, the guy to take um, the beam? Yeah. So so, let me see. How how did that start? The setup was uh, because we shot that in continuity— um, and we improvised a lot, and uh, and the writer would write the sequence, and then everybody would look at it and say, "Are we going to do it this way? Are we going to do it differently?" And so the beam the beam story was that Tommy Lee, uh, the Harrison is having the fight with with the bad guy. You know the climax kill. They're in the laundry oh, room. Yeah, yeah. They go through the they go through the the uh, the glass. Ceiling, mm-hmm, the elevator, right, right. Uh, the sk- skylight, and uh, and then Tommy was going to get hit in the head with the beam, and then the bad guy was going to take Tommy's gun, and then Tommy was going to shake out of it and save the day, and and Tommy and Harrison and Andy were like, you know, that's ridiculous, you know, <laughs> hit hit the guy in the head with the beam, I you know I shake uh, I shake off the dust and I save the day. So they walked out of the trailer, and Andy's like, eh. And I go, Andy, hit me in the head with the beam. And he goes, what? And I go, hit me in the head with the beam. We go in the laundry room, and and uh, and Tommy goes, Cosmo, come with me. You go that way. I go that way. He goes this way. The bad guy hits me, gave, takes my gun. Tommy saves the day. So it's in the you know, next day. The sides come out, and I'm in the scene. I'm, another scene. I'm in. Good. I keep reading it, and they're killing me. 
So I go, what? So I run in, Andy, Andy, Andy. I said, you can't kill me. He goes, why not? I said, what if there's a sequel? <laughs> he goes, all right, so we won't kill you. So now it's like three in the morning because we shot it. that. It was night, all night shooting, like six weeks of night shooting at the Hilton Hotel. Um, and uh, the um, Andy was the camera operator on A Medium Cool with Haskell West. Oh, Rexler. no shit. And, wow. you know, that's where the Democratic Convention yeah. was and it's where the riots were. And that's where they became part of Medium Cool because it was, you know, all improvised. Yeah. So, so Andy was like, you know, it's very important to me to make this movie here at the Hilton. And uh, so now I'm laying on the ground and they've already shot the, the hit and the guy, they're doing the scene where the guy comes, gets the gun. And I'm like, I'm moving. I'm like rolling. Oh, because I know that they could make me look dead. <laughs> but if I'm moving, we don't have the technology yet, right? If I'm moving, I you know, at least I got a shot. Um, so, so, uh, I look, these other feet come in, they, somebody calls cut and I look up and I, you know, it's like a camera panning up to this face and it's Harrison Ford and he's shaking his head very slowly. And I go, what? And he goes, you should be dead. <laughs> and I go, oh, it's your brilliant idea. I go, no, no, no. I, I said, you know, the beam hit Tommy in the head. It wasn't killing him. And Harrison goes, what do you give a shit? You know, you don't, you don't have to be in the aftermath sequence. I said, well, what if there's a sequel? <laughs> and he smiles and he goes, there's not going to be a sequel because I ain't doing this piece of shit again. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. We'll just chase another $15 million asshole through the woods. <laughs> and he starts laughing. And now... A couple of years go by and they call and they're making the sequel and yippee. And, and Harrison and I shared the same manager, Pat McQueenie, who became his agent later in life. And uh, so she calls and says, Harrison's in New York. He's doing The Devil's Own. Um, they're having the big premiere. You want to go? He, he, and I said, yeah, thank you. And I, so I go and it's at the Four Seasons restaurant that, uh, on Park Avenue. And there's like hundreds of people and I see Harrison Ford like popping out of this crowd I'm coming down these stairs and he's like pops out Joey Pants <laughs> pops out Joey Pants <laughs> and so I start walking tw through the people toward him and he does the same and it's like you know on the beach right yeah. and uh, <laughs> and he grabs me and he goes so you doing that piece of shit and I said yeah <laughs> and he says good thing you didn't listen to me <laughs> He's adorable, man. I love that guy. I like Andrew Davis's um, a, a Steel Big, Steel Little, too. Yeah. It's good. That's, that's, that, that makes two of you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Andy loves that movie. It's good. Yeah. It's good. And, uh, and Brickman's follow-up, Men Don't Leave, with Jessica Lange, is also very good. Very good. Yeah. It's, it's hard because there's an expectation, you know, the, 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 because the first film is so big. That if yeah. it's that if the follow-up film is not quite as well, big. Well, you know, with Andy, he'd been trying to make Steel Big, Steel Little for a long time, and you know, even when you look at the Fugitive, um, the the corporate manipulations and pharmaceutical companies and pharma and all of the stuff that's going on that he kind of gingerly put into the storyline of the picture, 
You know, that's not what people remember. But when you look mm-hmm. at it, you get a closer look now, you go, oh, wow, he was saying something here. And he, the same thing with, with Steel Big, Steel Little. I just remembered something, and this is important to fans of this show. Uh-oh. You were in The Idolmaker. Now, in The Idolmaker, Peter Gallagher plays the lead singer, Caesar, who's kind of like a Fabian. And uh, the song he had, his one-hit song in the movie that he sings over and over is, Baby, baby, I just want to take you where I'm going. Baby, baby, I just want to take you to the sky. I make you feel good, baby. <laughs> I make you flash. feel love, baby. I want to take you <laughs> to the sky. <laughs> mean anything to you, Joe? <laughs> when you did, when you did that, I, I, Jeff Barry wrote that song. Oh yeah! Wow. He was he was the technical yeah, sure. guy. He'd he, be a great guest for us. Yeah, Jeff Barry. And, and he's still alive. He's around. He's yeah, the sure. best. Yeah, I'd love to get him. And then I remember the middle. <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> Tell me why you and I are not close together. Tell me why did someone break your heart? <laughs> Well, that was Bob Marcucci. Yeah, yeah. Was who was Frankie Avalon and Cor- Fabian? Uh, his, ma- you know, it was, it, it was really the story of Bob Marcucci, and uh, um, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, James Darren too. Uh, no, not yeah. James Darren. Yeah, but but uh, those two guys, because mm-hmm. back in the, you know in the early fifties, a lot of that was happening in Philly. It was the it was yeah. the Philly sound? Frankie was here. He was Avalon, yeah, and uh, Bobby Rydell. I just saw that Bobby Rydell is working on the new Taylor. He had a, probably a small part in the new Taylor Hackford movie with Bob De Niro. Um, also was a guest on this show, Bobby Rydell. I love Bobby Rydell. Did a Gilbert I impression. Go, I used to go. <laughs> yes. I, I used to. I I saw Bobby Rydell at Palisades Amusement Park. Wow. With cousin Bruce Morrow. Wow. Bob, yeah, I was like, he was the first. Recording star that I ever saw in person. We would, you know, I went to Palisades Park, and they had that little singing arena, and uh, and these guys would sing lip sync to to forty fives. Yeah, it's our childhood too. We're trying to get Chuck Barris, who wrote Palisades Park. Chuck Barris. Yeah, is that the guy that had the the, the crazy show? The, the Gong Show. And, yeah, and, 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 and yeah. allegedly, allegedly he was the CIA a CIA operative. Yes. But he also CIA. wrote Palisades and Park. And he's still alive? Yes. yes. These guys are all still around, Joe. We're I, trying to get them in here to tell well, their I story. I love oh. that, that Chuck, uh, Chuck uh, what is his name, uh, the Gong Show. Yeah, the Gong Show. Yeah. yeah. Is that he writes that book and he goes around telling everybody that – the CIA, if he reveals anything, the CIA will kill him. And he's going on TV shows, <laughs> making movies about it. Yeah, they made movies about yeah. it. Yeah. Clooney directed it. Thinking, yeah. Sam so, Rockwell. But the CIA, the minute they find him. <laughs> I think he was just having fun. You know, it's like that Clooney would make that movie 
like for real, like he really was a CIA agent. No wonder it didn't make a nickel. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask you, too, before we, we talk about your organization, too. I've heard you talk about The Matrix, and you've said you still haven't figured it out. Is that true? Yeah. I, uh... <laughs> Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? <sighs> Ignorance is bliss. The plot line for The I Matrix see. wasn't like so easy to follow. Yeah, both of them. You know, so somebody said... Uh, um, was it hard for you to follow the plot line to Memento? And Chris Nolan said he's still trying to figure out the plot line to The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You're also our second guest, a little trivia, to have played Roy Cohn. Yeah, I talked to Roy Cohn. You did? I wow. called him up on the phone. I was doing, this is a miniseries uh, about Robert Kennedy, yeah, right? And right? Brad Davis played yep. played Kennedy and Harris Eulen played Joe McCarthy and I and I played Roy Cohn and I, I called up you know his office, uh, and I told the secretary that I was playing him in an NBC miniseries. Uh, you know he got on the phone and spoke to me for like forty minutes. Very charming, very charming guy. And Donald Trump's mentor. Mentor. Scary. Wow. Well, you know what's going to happen to Trump? I think is what happened to Cohn. He owned nothing in his name. Uh, in the end. The uh, the government took everything after he died. Mm -hmm. He left everything to his boyfriend, mm -hmm. and then they took everything from him. But I, you know, I I think I think this hubris and um, and back to the hole, you know, that hole that you got to fill. That Trump had a really good thing, and I think you know he's exposed himself to so much. To a magnifying glass that's going to just tear him apart. And driving down here today, mm -hmm. I passed by on on West Side Highway all those Trump buildings, and I noticed that one of the names is already down. That, that they, you know, that they took a name, and you know, and I think in the next two or three years, all of these deals that he has, they're licensing deals. He doesn't own those buildings. I think they, you know, they, they, he's going to get found out and go to jail for tax evasion, and it's going to be bad. You heard it here from Joey Pants, wow. the production. <laughs> and you're sitting across from the man who referred to him on national television as Mein Fuhrer. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen the movie? It's called Look Who's Back. It's a German film. No. Oh, I'll it's on it Netflix. It's fantastic. Look who's back. Adolf Hitler comes back. It's in German. <laughs> oh, boy. He wakes up out of, you know, he's like, it's like he comes back after 70 years in modern Berlin. He's still in his uniform right before the, the bunker. And, uh, and they think that he's a, a Hitler impersonator. And he becomes a sensation, like a, like a, like a comic. They think he's a comic. <laughs> Yeah. It's fantastic. What a premise. But they, the first interview that he does 
is uh, the guy, he's like a Jimmy Kimmel guy. He goes, what do you want to do? What, you know, now that you're back, he goes, I want to make Germany great again. The movie was made in 2011. Wow. It's fantastic. Prophetic. It's prophetic because <laughs> it's like nothing changes. Yeah. Because he says in the movie, he goes, look, I didn't take over. The people elected me. You know, it's not Trump. It's the people. Of course. It's of us. Of course. You know, it's like, ooh. And see, he's a case study. You want yeah. to talk about somebody wearing their insecurities and their their craziness, their their uh, well, everything's a lie, their stuff right? On their sleeve, you sure. Know. How did he react, by the way? When you, I know it's only television, but when uh, you called him when you basically called him Hitler. Maybe he was flattered. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah. He was on The Apprentice, on The Celebrity Apprentice. And, and you called him Mind Fuhrer. Yeah, I said, thank you, Mind Fuhrer. <laughs> yeah. And you were ahead of your time because that National Lampoon photograph Where's, surfaced. Oh, yes. Was it Spy Magazine? Oh, I forget. There's now. a photograph yeah. that surfaced recently, Joe, and you'll find this interesting. It's on social media of Gilbert, like, doing a Nazi salute behind Trump. It's a picture that was taken yeah. in, in, what, the 80s? Yeah, that was in Spy Magazine. <laughs> in Spy Magazine. Me standing, making faces behind Donald Trump. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Let's plug Joe's books, too. Oh, okay. Before we go, they're both terrific reads and absorbing. Thank you. Before we sign off, Joe, tell us about your organization. Tell us about No Kidding Me Too. Well, you know, when we started No Kidding Me Too, it was a, it was a, cele- it was a celebrity outreach using celebrity to shine the light on the stigma, discrimination, and bigotry that shrouds mental disease. So, so um, that, that, that was our, uh, our mission, really, is, is to get people to talk openly about their uneasiness um, and then in seeking treatment, they can get better and become even greater participants in society. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot has happened now. A lot more celebrities are talking about it and making it part of, of, of who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's stop the stigma. That's what you mean. When yeah, you stopping that. the stigma of, uh, 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 and shame of, of disease. I mean, uh, recently. A lot of people talking uh, are coming out and and talking about it that wouldn't have talked about it, so it's like it's gotten to, to a point where people uh, are doing it um, openly, better. It's better what, for everybody. What can our listeners do to help or? Uh... Gee, you know, you know, uh, get the movie. Uh, okay, and uh, the movie was made in in twenty oh nine. Yeah, the documentary yeah. is called No Kidding Me Too. Right. You can download it on Amazon. Okay. And, and uh, you know, in these books, you can actually, you can also go to uh, Audible and hear I, me tell the stories. I mm-hmm. should read the title of this. Yeah, yeah they're terrific. Joe, Joe Pantoliano. I got your name right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> Maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> and you wrote two best-selling books. One of them is Who's Sorry Now? The True Story of a Stand-Up Guy and Asylum, Hollywood Tales from My Great Depression, Brain Dis-Ease, Recovery, and Being My Mother's Son. So Who's Sorry Now? and Asylum. Yeah, Who's Sorry Now? covers the first 17 years of my life and Asylum uh, it was the last, uh, where, the last twenty. Where'd the title come from? Who's sorry now? <laughs> well, that was a song my mom would sing when, right. when, yes. when, the, when they would pop. You know, yeah. she would just dig into them, and then finally, when they start screaming at her, yeah, 
she starts singing, Who's sorry now? <laughs> yeah. She yelled it. She didn't say it. Whose heart is breaking? <laughs> it was like her declaration. I won. I won. And Connie Francis bookends this episode. <laughs> Joe, you have to come back. We barely scratched the surface. I hope you come back and Thank see you. us. Thank you. I'd love and, to. And see us again. I love My God, you've done talks with you guys. So we, much. We were so busy talking about your craziness. We ignored your career. <laughs> I've been ignoring it for 40 years. <laughs> Okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and uh, we've had on the guy who won an Emmy for some uh, character I I don't know the name of <laughs> Ralph. <laughs> let's say it for him, Joe. Okay, Ralph. Ralph Cifaretto. Cifaretto. Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> You got Pantoliano right. Oh, no. we'll, we'll... Oh, and Joey Pants would make it easier. That's right. So, Joe Pantoliano, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. This was terrific. Thank you, guys, very much, really. We'll see you again. Okay. Okay.